This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Today on the Country Hour, we'll get an update on what has been lost due to floods in northern Victoria, well, in across multiple areas of Victoria, I really should say. We're talking thousands of livestock dead, over 100,000 uh, hectares of crops and so forth affected. We'll go through all of those numbers shortly. The Minister for Emergency Management and the Agriculture Minister in Australia, Murray Watt, is touring Rochester and heading to Echuca right now. You will hear from him on the program too, and you'll also hear from farmers dealing with the recovery, what it's taking and so forth. Plus, if you need something else to focus on today, a footy club's crop has been harvested. We'll get the details today on the program too. Stay tuned for that one and a whole lot more here on the Country Hour. Great to have you on board. Let's get some rural news. And in fact, we'll go to Canberra for that as well. Jane McNaughton has the details. Hi, Jane. Thanks, Was. Water politics, wine, a bad prawn season and lightning in a bottle in today's rural news. Senate Estimates is focusing on the Murray-Darling Basin plan today and how much water is still required to fulfil the plan. It was revealed in last month's budget that the federal government has an unknown amount of money put aside for further water buybacks in the basin. That seemed contrary to the legislated caps on the amount the government was allowed to buy. However, Estimates has heard from departmental official Rachel Connell, who says that the government can enter the market for more than 200 gigalitres of water before those caps. It remains uh, approximately 270 gigalitres um, of headroom in relation to that cap. So there's still another 270 gigalitres that can be acquired before the cap is reached. And estimates has been updated on how much water is still left to get to fulfil the basin plan. Here's Rachel Connell again. So uh, there are, as you'd be aware, um, various water recovery targets in the basin plan. So in relation to the bridging the gap uh, water recovery target, uh, there's another 46 gigalitres of um, surface water to be recovered and another three gigalitres of ground water to be recovered. Uh, in relation to the 450 gigalitres of additional environmental water, there's currently 4.5 gigalitres registered uh, with the Commonwealth Environmental Water Holder. So uh, there's a, a number of um, projects that have been contracted that will contribute to that total as well. A trial in South Australia is trying to create lightning in a bottle to make more nitrogen available to plants. After a lightning storm, you may have noticed plants are greener and more lush, and that's because lightning has the ability to change the nitrogen in the air and make it available to plants. Research scientist Greg Butler says the work at Auburn in South Australia is trying to replicate that by effectively creating lightning in a bottle. It's effectively mimicking lightning in a very controlled fashion. So your listeners might be able to hear the air compressor. That's really the start of it, and that's where we're taking the air... And when we think about air, thinking that's four-fifths nitrogen and about one-fifth oxygen, um, so that's our nitrogen source, that's going through the compressor. Inside the water, there is what's called a non-thermal plasma arc. That is not hot like an arc welder, but it's still forming electrical arc like lightning, uh, just at a much smaller controlled scale. So what happens is that inside the liquid, the air gets bubbled uh, past that arc, and that's where the conversion of these molecular forms of nitrogen and oxygen are broken apart and reform as our nitric oxides, which is the start of our fertiliser process. That's uh, dissolved into the water and then that can be pushed out into the fertigation system. 
The tiger prawn season has come to an end one month early this year in northern Australia to allow stocks to recover. Of 52 trawlers in the fishery, 11 are owned by Cairns-based Austral Fisheries. Operations manager Brian Van Wick says the industry decided boats needed to head back to the docks at the end of October after three months of fishing. Basically, we've had three years with average catches in the, in the tiger prawn fishery. The general conception is that it's not caused by overfishing, uh, that scientists sort of believe that it's probably environmentally driven. So the, the history of this fishery, there used to be actually over 300 boats fishing 24-7 uh, in the 80s you know, every day. And now we've only got 52 boats fishing uh, four months a year for tiger prawns, and they're only fishing at night time. So we believe that it's not fishing that's driving prawn numbers down, it's just sort of a bit of a slump. But that doesn't really excuse us from not doing something about it. So, you know, taking leadership, we decided to remove the month of November for this year. So we, as an industry, we agreed to finish on the 31st of October. The general feeling behind that is that there'll be more prawns left over to repopulate the fishing grounds for next year. It's been 20 years since a group of Australian winemakers became early adopters of technology used on the majority of wine bottles sold across the world today. Fed up with their best wine spoiling, 14 winemakers from South Australia's Clare Valley banded together and unknowingly began a movement that would see the global wine industry change forever. They decided to put screw caps on their wine bottles. In the early 2000s, only 2% of Australian white wines were bottled under screw cap, but two decades later, that figure now stands at 98%. Hillary Mitchell from Mitchell Wines changed all of their red and white wines to screw caps and says Australian winemakers led the change. The fact that it was Clare Valley putting their premium Rieslings under screw cap was just that little push that everybody needed to go on board because so many other people had tried to do it and it almost sent their companies broke. I think 20 years later, I mean, some people drinking wine now probably never even had a corked wine. They don't know the world without screw cap. <laughs> so they probably wouldn't realise that it was something 20 years ago that happened in a, in a pub in Clare. I mean, it was such a great idea for the winemakers, realising they had one of their best 2002 vintages on hand, to put it aside in the vault, thinking we're going to do this tasting in 20 years, just to show how well our wines age and how we could do that, only ever do that with screw cap. And that's Friday's edition of Rural News Was. I better go unscrew some Pinot Gris. 20 years of screw caps on wines. Thanks for that information, Jane. Jane McNaughton there with Rural News for you today. Coming up on the show, you're going to we're going to head to Rochester. We'll, we'll speak to a farmer there about how his recovery effort is going. You'll also hear from the Emergency Management Minister who is in that region today. But let's start with the losses to agriculture as a result of the flooding events in Victoria because they're starting to add up and you're being asked to make sure your details are included as well. Banjo Patterson is with Agriculture. Agriculture Victoria. He's the state agency commander. He can join you now to take you through those details. Benjo Patterson, welcome to the Country Hour. Thanks, Warwick. I suppose we should start with the latest update. The figures provided from Agriculture Victoria last week were stark enough, but I imagine they've grown even since then. What are we looking at in terms of the damage to Victoria's agriculture from these events? Well, you're correct in saying that they have increased and they will continue to increase as we contact more and more um, landholders. However, at the moment, the latest figures that we've released, I'll just go through some of the main ones, if you like, and that is uh, in excess of 5,000 livestock deaths. There's in excess of 8,000 uh, kilometres of fencing damaged or lost. 
around about 73,000 tonnes of hay or silage destroyed, uh, around about nearly 60,000 hectares of pasture lost, and the total affected farm area that we've collated to this stage is in the order of 180,000 hectares. So those figures, as I said, they will continue uh, to increase as we contact more landholders, um, but they're the ones that we have put together at this stage. Do you have a, a figure for crops that have been inundated or given the growing stage, is that difficult? Uh, it, 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 crops, uh, whether they're broadacre or horticulture, are difficult because extended damage, whether it's a loss or an impact on quality, is much harder to assess in the shorter term uh, and I haven't got that actual figure on hand at the moment but it certainly is a figure that's uh, increasing uh, and uh, will continue perhaps as more and more landholders uh, get out and are able to make an assessment on their crops. Would it be fair to say that we're expecting that figure to be well in excess of 100,000 hectares? Uh, it's too early to say at this stage as I said it's not it's a combination of crops that might be totally lost, but also there's that quality issue too that's of much importance to uh, growers, whether they be grain growers or horticulturalists. How many farmers have you spoken to so far? At this stage, we have managed to attempt to contact in excess of 10,000 farmers. Now, the success rate there varies a bit, but uh, as you may be aware, if we don't make manage to make contact with our first attempt, we follow that up with a, a second call and even a third call. And for those we don't manage to make contact with from using their contact numbers that we have, uh, we do encourage them to uh, contact us using our, the Vic emergency hotline, uh, that being one eight hundred double two six double two six, and they can either report any urgent issues that they would like us to help them resolve on that or indeed just report their uh, impact losses and damage. Yeah, so if a farmer's so, listening to this and hasn't heard from AgVic thinking, oh, they haven't called me, this is their opportunity. You're saying, please call us and give us this information so we can make sure it's included. That's certainly the case. Uh, I will say, however, that we are working through uh, a large number of farmers. So just because we haven't called you yet doesn't mean that you aren't necessarily on our list, but uh, you certainly can avail yourself of that facility uh, to get in before we get to you. Uh, we are tending to work uh, dealing with the areas that perhaps the water is starting to recede a little bit first because obviously that's where farmers are in a better position to be able to make some sort of estimate of their losses. If they're still underwater, of course, it's very hard to do that. That's the, the difficulty here, isn't it? You're, you're dealing with areas that have recovered or trying to recover from flooding. You've got areas that are currently under inundation and, and being flooded. And then you've got areas like further along the Murray that are watching the water come to them and, and damage still to come. Exactly. It's a, a, a complete continuum from, as you said, those that are uh, into the recovery process right through to those that are still in the preparedness stage. Bejo Patterson is with you from Agriculture Victoria. We're speaking through not only the damage, but the assistance that is available to farmers and which we'll, we'll move on to now. Bejo Patterson, what assistance is there for, for farmers to recover and deal with what has happened to their properties? 
Well, there's a range of uh, assistance that are available to farmers, but I guess the one that's um, probably of utmost importance to people right at the moment is the financial support package that has been announced um, both by the state and federal government. I won't go into all the details of those, but just to quickly remind your listeners, Warwick, that there are uh, four major components of that, uh, one being a primary producer recovery grant of up to $75,000. There's also a rural landholders grant up to $25,000 for smaller scale producers. There are uh, concessional loans available to primary producers up to $250,000. And there are for primary producers, transport subsidies of up to $15,000 to support the transport of any fodder or stock or water or things like that. And I must say that there's been already a very high demand for that financial support and rural finance who are administering those financial support packages have received in excess of 650 applications already and obviously that will continue to grow. How do farmers know if they qualify? The, there are um, some guidelines on both the Rural Finance website and our own Agriculture Victoria's website. However, what I would stress is to people who are considering maybe making an application, please don't self-assess. Uh, you may, in fact, think that you aren't eligible, whereas if you put in an application uh, and allow rural finance to make a decision, uh, you might come up with more pleasant news than what you perhaps thought yourself. So please don't self-assess. The loans and grants are there to help as many people as possible. So um, put in your application. If you need support putting together the application, the various rural financial counselling services they have staff that can assist you with actually the process. You've been a big part of Agriculture Victoria's response, Banjo Patterson. Is there anything else you think uh, farmers or we need to know? There will be and have been a number of issues that come up that people would like some sort of resolution for, whether it's access issues, whether it's technical advice, whether it's uh, advice on recovery going into the more medium, longer term, any of those issues related to agriculture, people can access Agriculture Victoria. And as I said, by far the best contact at this stage is to use the Vic Emergency Hotline number, being 1800 226 226. They'll put it through to the appropriate people in Agriculture Victoria and hopefully we can work with you and industry to help solve as many problems as humanly possible. Banjo Patterson, thank you very much for your time on the program today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Warwick, and uh, good luck to your listeners as they continue to deal with the consequences of the floods, the extensive floods we have in this state. That's Banjo Patterson, who is uh, the Agriculture Victoria State Agency Commander, speaking about some of the figures there of the damage to the floods and also making sure you get uh, in contact with authorities if you need more assistance or to access some of those grants. I think that's an important point. Don't self-assess. Go and find out if uh, you do qualify for some of these uh, assistance grants. They could be a big help. Uh, Losses so far, though, as he said, from Agriculture Victoria, in excess of 5,000 livestock, more than 8,000 kilometres of fencing, 73,000 hectares of hay and silage, 58,000 or up to 60,000 hectares of pasture. No official figure yet for crop loss, but really 
huge figures from agriculture victoria there and we'll continue talking about the floods right now on the program and the recovery uh let's head to rochester now to hear from one farmer who's dealing with the challenge of picking things up after being impacted by natural disaster getting his bearings and taking those steps towards cleaning up luke radford discovered from tom acox that's a big challenge that he's facing right now so for us, Luke, it's been fought on a few fronts. Like we, the immediate issue through the bulk of that flooding is keeping animals fed. So we we did a few things on the Thursday. You know, put two days worth of feed of the cows, two days worth of feed in front of the cows in the barn, filled up all the troughs in the feedlot. You know, had feed in a mixer wagon ready to go. So we did we did make some preparations. Um, you know, where we came unstuck was you know the water came into through the main yard here and through the dairy and filled up our calf shed. There was quite a lot of inundation through all the pens where where our calves are after they've been weaned out of the sheds and we had just no prep done there so like that that's that was a real challenge in the early days of um trying to you know dry those pens out dry the sheds out get the calves back on track get animals fed that's just that's a huge task like there's quite a lot of animals on hand here you know through that period and i suppose in in that immediate time we had a lot of help from family and friends and locals and whatnot to you know, sort of put their shoulder to the wheel and, and make sure we we could keep operating for those few days. But then once that water disappears and you can try and get a routine back in order, then I suppose that you assess the damage and figure out what to tackle first. And, that, and tackling that first for us has probably been, you know, relocating some animals out of here to some new homes for a few months while we while we let the mud dry and fix some fencing and, and lot feeding areas and, and whatnot. And then we'll sort of... You know, take it piece by piece from there. The challenge then, though, is that like this isn't just a sort of an immediate. You you get the damage, you fix it, and then everything's sort of back to normal. It's it's a long drawn out process. So, what do those next couple of months look like? And where's the sort of catch there? Yeah, from my dairy farming perspective, there's us and and probably nearly other every other farmer in the region. Um, in, well, this is the northern Victorian region. We we do rely on a spring harvest window to put away high-quality protein feed that we can feed back to the cows over the next 12 months. So we're, we're certainly not alone in, in that sense that that harvest is all but staffed, really. Certainly in our case, like, we won't conserve any forage from the spring. We do have feed on hand from last year, thankfully, that we're putting in the ration at the moment. But, you know, we've got to start sourcing feed to replace that forage that we would have been using going forward. The other issue being, like, we've got another window in time now to get our summer crop in the ground. And, you know, just assessing some of that today, like, we've still got water lying on paddocks where we should be getting country prepped for corn. So that that forms the other half of pretty much our, our fodder base is, is a summer crop of maize. So we really need to get that in the ground sometime between now and Christmas to be able to get it off again in the autumn of next year. Over summer, you're also going to be actually looking at shutting down for a little bit. Yeah, look, for, for us, I suppose um, we've come to that conclusion that the best way forward for us in the short term will be a, a period of a complete shutdown. And there's some repairs we need to get done in the dairy, in the facility that we house our cows in. And, you know, the team, and me included, me and Emma included, are, are pretty much cooked. So we, we feel like we're going to take a break for six or eight weeks over the summer, get everything fixed that we want to fix, and then restart again in the autumn. And, you know, I suppose... This flood event has probably highlighted that it's been a tricky few years for us and for many 
many of our colleagues in the dairy industry and we feel that in this point in time it's probably our best pathway forward for us to clear our heads and and get the motivation to probably fire up again in the autumn. Well speaking of that sort of tricky time I mean even if we look across just over the last decade we've had three years of flood events if you count 2016 in there as well which wasn't as big as 2011 and now but was definitely sizable and we've had some super dry years in there that have made everything tricky I mean just how are you? (laughs) Well I was talking with our team this morning I said the best thing about a drought is we know what the weather's going to do every day Um, and cows and cows and mud it's just it's not much fun you know when it's dry and dusty milking cows as long as we can feed them it's it's actually not that bad you know you can ride a drought out you just got to be able to get creative in how we can feed them the flood events are a different beast altogether you know they do throw up prolonged challenges that sometimes you know we're just not prepared for them certainly which i've you know spoken to some people about is the 2011 event i think there was a a sense of relief that it could actually rain again and and we were returning to some sort of period where we had water in storages and you know and we could grow feed whereas this one it's it's pretty draining that we've you know the, the finish line for many people was was pretty close you know crops we're getting close to harvest. We had a good spring for fodder production in this region for, for dairy. You know, yes, there have been some challenges through the winter for milking cows, but, you know, the summer's not far away and, and this just does, I suppose, feel like the knockout punch a little bit. You know, but we'll, we'll recoup. We're resilient. You know, we've got good networks and good support and good help. But, yeah, you know, us and many of our colleagues are pretty tired and I think we just probably need to take out, take stock and recoup and we'll we'll push on hearing the numbers is one thing but then hearing the personal experience about what toll that takes and what the cleanup still looks like is another that's rochester dairy farmer uh tom acox speaking there about the flood recovery process and it's a big one, isn't it? Uh, we'll stay in Rochester right now and we'll hear uh, from one of the people making a lot of big decisions in terms of recovery, especially for the federal government response. That is Federal Emergency Management Minister Murray Watt, who was touring that region today and heading to Echuca. I spoke to Murray Watt a short time ago as he was travelling between the two places and I started by asking what he'd seen in Rochester today. Yeah, so so far today uh, I was in Rochester, Secretary College, Unfortunately, that school, which has uh, about three, four hundred students in it, has been completely destroyed. They've had to go through and remove all of the furniture that's been destroyed. They're, they're tearing down walls. They're, they're having to wash out all of their manual buildings, their home economics, their science labs. They've lost all their chemicals. And the students there are now being basically taken to Bendigo every day for their classes, which is you know, a real toll and, and a fatigue issue for a lot of the students and the staff there. So there's a lot of work to be done to get that school back up and running for the new school year. And we've just come from the local recovery hub in Rochester, which meant I had a chance to catch up with everyone, from the Services Australia staff who are helping with payments. There's financial counsellors there. I managed to catch up with some dairy and cropping farmers who've lost a lot of their crops and had a really big impact. So it's just been very helpful to get a first-hand picture of what the damage is and what needs to be done. But as I say, my sense is that both the state and local governments are working really effectively to get support out to people, um, but everyone can be assured that the federal government will be standing there with them as well. 
Yeah, and there is already assistance out there for primary producers and so forth on the the $75,000 flood recovery grants uh, and otherwise. But are there holes in terms of assistance and programs that you are learning about as you go into areas that are moving into recovery? My sense is that the financial support that's being provided to people directly is probably about where it needs to be for the moment. And as you say, we recently reached agreement with the Victorian government to provide grants of up to $75,000 uh, for primary producers and up to 50000 for small businesses. So they're reasonably significant grants to help people get back on their feet. I think the big thing that we're waiting to see now is what the damage bill is going to be in terms of infrastructure. I think that's one of the big differences that you see with floods that come through rural areas compared to the big cities. The big cities get a lot more homes that get flooded, but in rural areas it's roads and bridges and things like that that get badly damaged. So um, the state government is now working with councils to try to establish you know, what repairs are needed and get those sort of things happening. And we will, as a federal government, help fund those repairs. I think that's the next big thing that we're waiting to see, what the cost will be. And all I can say is that I know it's going to be big. We have now provisioned $3 billion in the federal budget for disaster payments uh, just for these events. And who knows, really, whether that's going to end up being enough. We've got to wait and see how much more rain we get. I think it's another reminder that we do need, as a country, to be getting much better prepared for these events compared to what we've seen in recent years. We're well on the way now to establishing a new disaster ready fund, uh, which will enable the federal government to invest up to $200 million a year in disaster mitigation. Uh, And we're hoping that that money will be matched by states, territories and local governments to spread it even further, uh, because we just haven't seen that level of federal investment in disaster preparedness and mitigation that we need, given the disasters we keep seeing. The idea of a disaster readiness fund, is that really going to form part of the government's response to things like climate change, flood levies, fire refuges, other pieces of infrastructure? Definitely. We see see it as a crucial part of adapting to climate change. Obviously, our government has passed legislation to put in place place much um, stricter emissions reductions targets to try to tackle the root cause of these disasters and bring down those emissions and hopefully try to put a cap on climate change. But the fact is that the climate has changed and we do need to be adapting to it. And that's where making sure that we do have those flood levies and telecommunication systems to to make sure that people can be kept safe when we do see these disasters happening more regularly. That's an important part of it too. And you're off to Echuca this afternoon? Yeah, I'm on my way to Echuca right now, actually. So uh, again, I haven't been able to get there yet since the floods. So I'm looking forward to Mayor Amos showing me around and showing me what needs to be done. Um, we all know that Echuca has been pretty badly hit and the, there were, the levy protected a lot of people. Obviously, there are other people with different views about that and I want to get on top of that. Um, but again, the more you can get out in those communities and see and hear from people directly, I think the better. And just quickly, the much vaunted by the National Farmers Federation, the $100 billion worth of value for Australian <clears throat> agriculture. Is that going to take a hit this year, given the flooding situation? I think it probably will. I mean, we are still on track, I think, to hit that $100 billion goal, uh, which the NFF set and which we're certainly behind as well as a government. Um, The reality is, you know, the impact of these floods on particularly grains um, is going to have a hit. And it's so unfortunate because people were looking at a really bumper season, good prices, high yields. And there's a lot of people who still will be able to do that. But there's many farmers around who are now really going to be hurting. Uh, Some of the farmers I met with this morning in Rochester, they've suffered losses of probably half a million dollars 
just in terms of the crops that they lost that was feed for their dairy cattle. Um, and they certainly know other people who've suffered a lot bigger damage. So, yeah, it may not end up being quite the season that we'd hoped for, but obviously overall conditions are still pretty good for farmers in Australia and that's a great thing for the whole country. Murray Watt, thanks for your time. Good on you, Warwick. That is Murray Watt, who is the Federal Emergency Management and also Federal Agriculture Minister speaking to you there. Uh, as I said, touring Rochester today on the way to Echuca now to tour that part of the world. You can send us a text on what you think of today's or any of the stories, 0467842722, or indeed give us a call, 1300 Right now, though, let's head to the regional newsroom to find out what's making regional news headlines. Laura Mayers has that information for us today. G'day. Laura. Good afternoon, Warwick. The Murray River Council says it's engaging flood modelling experts to identify whether levees built prior to MoMA's major flooding in October impacted water flows. CEO Terry Dodd says landholders raised concerns about floodwater inundating their properties faster than expected. He says half a dozen levees were impacted and strengthened in the last month, raising questions, raised and strengthened in the last month, raising questions about whether they impacted water during recent flooding. Two teenagers have been discharged from the Warrnambool Base Hospital following an incident at Mercy Regional College. Two Year 8 students suffered burns after camp equipment fuelled by methylated spirits caught fire at the school in the state's southwest. The teenagers were taken to hospital yesterday in a stable condition after the accident, with one suffering burns to their hand and the other to their legs. The principal says the cause of the accident is still unclear and WorkSafe is investigating. The federal government says it would be happy to consider Bull Oaks Council's push for funding for future flood protection. On Wednesday, the Northwestern Victorian Council voted in favour of advocating for betterment works to be included in Commonwealth State Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangement Scheme. The Council says this extra support would allow infrastructure to be reconstructed to a more disaster-resilient standard. As a result of the wet spring, the fire danger period is commencing around three weeks later than usual for the Mildura Council area. The CFA has identified increased fire risk in Victoria's far northwest and has declared the state's first fire danger period of the 2022-23 fire season. The fire danger period will commence Monday, November 21 from Mildura Rural, Rural City Council area. The bushfire season is expected to be normal in Victoria, except for parts of central and eastern Victoria, where the potential is below normal. And police are investigating a series of attempted carjacking carjackings in Morwell last Monday. A 20-year-old man and a female passenger were driving along Churchill Road when a man standing in the middle of the road waved them down for at about half past nine. The driver braked when a second man appeared and attempted to open the passenger side door before hitting the car. The victims managed to drive off. Several similar incidents occurred before 10pm that night. None of the victims were physically injured and anyone with information is urged to contact Crime Stoppers. And for more news and stories, you can head to your local ABC station online. Thanks very much for that, Laura. Laura Mayers there with regional news headlines. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. And on the text line here, Max has sent a text saying, uh, Hi Warwick, I've just heard the Incident Control Centre's instructed parks to feed the feral horses in the Barmer Forest. This is wrong. It's not their role to do this, says uh, Max as well. Max, I have to check on that, uh, but thanks very much for the heads up anyway. 
was going to talk more about that story this week. It was working with our newsroom here in ABC Shepparton to try and get as much information as possible. And there has been information from those feeding the Brumbies in that part of the forest. I can share with you, I tried to get some comment or even some basic information from Parks Victoria or DELP, some of the the relevant authorities there, uh, asked a number of just questions for some basic information. And I couldn't get... Well, any actual statement on the record, I got some basic, uh, they listed as the background information sent to me, and I'll read it to you as a quote. This is from Parks Victoria. Victoria is experiencing widespread flooding impacting many communities and parks across the state. We know this. Uh, the next quote, flooding in Barma National Park has caused many animals to seek higher ground, including kangaroos and feral horses. Again, that's why I contacted them. Uh, Next quote, Parks Victoria, with support from the Incident Control Centre, will monitor and review the the welfare of animals in Barma National Park over the coming weeks. And the quote after that, Parks Victoria, do not control feral horses outside the park's estate. I again contacted them for more information, at least saying, can you outline if uh, feeding brumbies in the park is allowed or even legal? Do you have a Brumby management plan for the Brumbies? Is flooding an opportunity to accelerate management of Brumbies in the park to try and get an idea of the thinking of Parks Victoria? And again, uh, no further information was provided. In fact, they ignored those emails. So again, there is time on this program available to Parks Victoria if they'd like to come on, talk about the state of the parks or the management of the Brumbies. But so far, they've failed to do so. And if we don't get a chance to prevent or present Uh, exercise this story other than what was already presented on uh, mornings programs and breakfast programs on ABC local radio. Um, That's why we haven't really covered it to any greater detail. So Max, uh, there's a little bit of information on back, well, from the background of it all for you. Let's head to the newsroom now though and find out what's happening weather-wise with uh, rainfall expected this weekend. All eyes particularly on that Saturday evening, Sunday rainfall event. Alana Cherney is a senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau and can take you through those details. Hi Alana. Hi, how's it going? Sorry about making your way through all of that. Let's get into the weather, though. What what are we looking at today? Yeah, so today we've got uh, a little bit of excitement um, developing at the moment with some thunderstorms starting to develop through parts of Gippsland um, as well as uh, outer northern and northeast um, of the of the Melbourne area. And so with that, we are expecting uh, some more showers and thunderstorms today, um, generally through those central and eastern areas. In terms of those falls, uh, generally about 5 to 15, with some isolated totals of 15 to 30 possible with those storms. Um, And I will will mention that there is a possibility of some uh, localised heavy rain as well as uh, some large hail with those storms today. Heading into the weekend, uh, continuation of the wet weather really, as from later on Saturday and into Sunday and Monday, we're expecting the next front to come through and that is going to bring some significant rainfall as well as some possibly severe thunderstorms. So on Saturday, uh, the potential for a few more thunderstorms lingering in the east. However, that next system starts to approach from the west during the day, uh, bringing down some tropical moisture. So Showers and thunderstorms are starting in the west generally tomorrow afternoon, getting to central parts uh, by tomorrow evening. And then Sunday looks to be 
like the really significant day in terms of rainfall. So starting with Saturday, uh, generally uh, 2 to 10 millimetres for Western districts. And that's the uh, stuff coming in at night time, that 2 to 10 millimetres? Yeah, yeah. So coming in from the afternoon, uh, could see some isolated 15 to 25 with thunderstorms. And in the east, uh, just expecting a few showers, but again, about 5 to 15 possible with those uh, thunderstorms possible over the eastern ranges again tomorrow. And then Sunday, generally we're looking at widespread totals of 10 to 20 millimetres. However, larger totals of 20 to 50 for the central and eastern ranges, as well as uh, potentially parts of the southwest and Gippsland coasts. And increasing again in the northeast, where we're looking at totals of 40 to 70 millimetres, with potentially isolated totals of about 80 to 100 with thunderstorms. So really uh, a wet day because we are looking at um, quite a, a stormy a stormy day, uh, a bit hit and miss in terms of where we're expecting those higher totals. However, it does look like the northeast will be getting um, those, higher, those higher totals on Sunday. And then on Monday... That system uh, does start to clear out, but still uh, having lingering impacts, particularly in the east, where we're looking at about 5 to 20 millimetres and isolated totals of uh, 20 to, to 40 about the ranges and um, possibly even more so with thunderstorms. So Saturday to Monday, and um, particularly Sunday, are looking like... Um, really wet days, and with that it is likely that a number of rivers uh, will see rises to minor or moderate flood levels, with the potential for some rivers in the northeast to increase to major if we do see some of those higher falls. So we've currently got um, a flood watch out, and that will be uh, issued again and updated today with uh, some, some more flood warnings potentially to come over the next few days. As well as that, uh, so we currently have a severe thunderstorm warning out for those storms on the outer parts of Melbourne. Uh, but given that we are looking at a few stormy days, there could be some more thunderstorm warnings to come. Yeah, and, and so that flood watch will come out this afternoon and sort of identify which catchments are, are being kept an eye on, I suppose, so to speak, across the weekend. Yes, exactly. Uh, in terms of that, beyond the major rain event then of the weekend and into early next week, is there anything further out on the radar we should keep an eye on? Yeah, so uh, from the middle of next week or from, from Tuesday, really, we start to see a cooler air mass come through. So we've, we've had some um, pretty warm weather, but it's likely to cool down quite significantly uh, from the middle of next week. We could see some alpine snow and snow levels getting down even to uh, about 1,000 metres um, late Tuesday and early Wednesday. But generally, in terms of that rainfall, a few more showers, but becoming more isolated throughout the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then becoming even more settled as the ridge comes through later in the week. Uh, and looking really far out, it looks like a next front system may start to come through next Friday and, and into Saturday. But in terms of how much rainfall or what impacts that may have, it, it's still pretty, um, still pretty far away and uncertain. It's the year where there's always another one coming, though, isn't there? <laughs> it does. Alana, thanks so much for the update. Really appreciate it, especially heading into this weekend. No worries. Thanks. Senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau, Alana Cherney, taking you through uh, the full forecast there. You're listening to the Country Hour. You can send us a text 0467 842 722.
put the floods to one side right now and talk about, well, one of the largest almond companies. It's going to have a new CEO and managing director early next year. Uh, David Surveyor is about to take the reins at Select Harvests from Paul Thompson. In an announcement made to the ASX, it was revealed that he will be paid more than $1 million per year. Select Harvests chairman Travis Dillon told Kelly Hollingworth about the leadership transition. So our discussions with Paul have been going on for a while now. Um, he's really excited about the next stage of his career. So we had plenty of notice to uh, to go out and recruit a replacement for Paul um, in uh, David Speyer. So um, David comes from the Alliance Group in New Zealand, one of the uh, largest meat processing businesses in New Zealand. So he's got a long track record of, uh, of leadership and um, management skills and working in the commodity market. So really excited about having David join what was the recruitment process like in terms of finding a replacement for Paul? We've used an external um, recruitment firm to, uh, to run a process for us, um, both internal and external candidates across, uh, across obviously Australia and New Zealand, obviously. And uh, we've come up with a, a great uh, candidate in David. When is David expected to start at Select Harvests? Yeah, David needs to uh, do a transition in his current role, so we'll hope to find out over the, the coming uh, weeks as to a specific date that David can join, but definitely um, the expectation is early in uh, 2023. Paul's been the CEO and Managing Director of Select Harvest for just over 10 years. What do you think his main achievements have been over that time? Paul's done an outstanding job. Uh, when he started at Select Harvest, their market cap um, was uh, was around $100 million, and uh, and today it's uh, over $600 million. He's grown the business enormously and achieved the scale within Select Harvest that we see today. So Paul's just done an outstanding job for Select Harvest. Sustainability has also been a big focus for the company. How important has that been and uh, under Paul's leadership as well? Yeah, yeah, as you said, Paul's driven that as well. So we've got our... Um, co-generation facility in uh, in Karina West. We've produced a third of the company's electricity from our waste materials. Organic fertiliser and uh, and compost as well are, are two projects that Paul's undertaken as well. So, uh, yeah, sustainability is at the heart of what we do and, and Paul and his team have uh, led that over the 10-year period. He's been in charge as well. It's still a fairly challenging time for the almond industry. The US, which grows the bulk of the global almond crop, has got the largest ever inventory of stock that it's ever had. Prices are fairly low as well. Uh, does that mean that David Surveyor is going to have his work cut out for him when he gets started? Oh Well, you could look at it uh, the other way too. Uh, he's coming in when almond prices are at an all-time low. So at some stage, that's, uh, that'll turn and David and... Uh, and the select team hopefully will be the beneficiaries of that. So, you know, there's always challenges in agriculture. Um, David understands that coming from the, uh, the meat sector that he's in. So, yeah, we think the opportunities uh, are enormous for us select in the coming years. That is uh, Travis Dillon, who is Select Harvest's chair, speaking there with Kelly Hollingworth. Stay with Kelly right now uh, and continue to talk about flooding making its way down the Murray River because there's a growing number of people getting very busy watching the water still come towards them. Molly Black is a horticultural agronomist at Elders in Robinvale and she says she's working with a lot of concerned and stressed table grape growers. Running around and focusing mostly on anything that's close to the river or close to the billabongs or close to the creeks, um, checking for disease if there's anything there from the rain that we've had over the last month and then making some serious decisions on 
spraying residual chemistry to protect them in case we can't get in if the levees go over. Have you got an idea of how much of the table grape vineyards in the district are at risk if the levees don't hold? I mean, it's hard for me. I, Out of my growers, I probably have maybe between 600, 800 acres that are at risk at the moment. Um, so, yeah, we just... That's only my growers. I don't even know what the other ones are like. I know that it's peaking at Kenley at the moment. That's a lot of grapes over there, so it's a concern. There are a lot of excavators, other earth-moving equipment in the region at the moment. Is that the main thing that you're encouraging growers to do is get those levees to a, a, you know, a suitable height to try and prevent the water coming onto their blocks? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they don't even need the encouragement. We had a town meeting last week and they started throwing around some pretty scary numbers for how much the river potentially can go up and they know that that means that a few of their vines will go under. So, like, I just did a run around yesterday and I've got levee banks going in at Euston, levee banks going in at Toltol and, like, around Happy Valley in Robinvale. So... That was like the first port of call. I feel quite bad for the earthwork people. They're probably getting a million and one phone calls, probably more than I am getting, which is pretty impressive. It's already been a very wet spring. Are there pest and disease pressures that the growers are having to grapple with that they weren't facing in previous seasons? Uh, it's been a really, really tough season really tough start probably had between 60 to 90 mil three weeks ago which meant like a lot of the vines in Euston went underwater because it's heavy clay it just held it so definitely disease pressure is impressive um table grapes and wine grapes are a little bit different with the industry table grapes are a little bit more high value so we could afford to get on once a week and put this chemistry on I've got mates that are agronomists around Mildura doing wine grapes and yeah the disease pressure the downy mildew is insane so it's going to be really interesting what are the main um, things that people are spraying to try and prevent disease there's lots of different options and realistically at the end of the day especially with supply issues at the moment it's whatever you can get is probably the best option um, plenty of your old school like sulfur um, mancozeb just as protectives but we are stepping it up a bit and using some of the newer residual um, synthetic chemistry just to hold it for a lot longer which is a much higher cost but at least it gives you a bit more peace of mind that you covered for maybe 20 days instead of 20 mil so what are those key diseases though that growers are looking out for yeah so at the moment with the rain uh downy mildew and some early botrytis is pretty prevalent um when we get like the hot humid days we can be a little bit of at risk for powdery mildew which is basically our major three if some of these crops are inundated and the water hangs around for a while what kind of impact could that have on crop yields and even the quality of the fruit that's produced yeah look i mean i've never seen a season like this um so i can only imagine if the vines stay underwater for i think after three days it kind of stops them from being able to grab oxygen so basically like chokes them out a bit so if it goes under for a week i shudder to think what will happen to the vine we might have some crop loss this year but then like next season is that vine going to be recovered enough and will it crop the same it's yeah it's going to be very difficult 
challenging, I think, is a word that we've used a lot this year. But Molly Black, a horticultural agronomist at Elders in Robinvale, talking about the, the challenging year, particularly for table grape growers and what they're facing. And that, on top of that, we've got reports of various hailstone, hailstorms and even uh, forecasts of more to come, as you just, just heard in the uh, weather report as well. So a lot on the table for horticultural growers uh, to deal with at the moment with flooding, as everybody who's trying to grow anything uh, are dealing with a lot right now. So let's change, well, tack a, a little bit, and we'll talk about a harvest for a footy club's crop today on the program. Oh, yeah, There's a sight to behold in a paddock near Oyen earlier this week, week when local farmers pitched in to harvest the Oyen United Kangas barley crop. Despite being slow going, the lineup of five headers and plenty of chasers and trucks uh, to keep the grain away meant the volunteers knocked out the 230 hectare paddock in one afternoon. Andrew Wilsmore, a farmer at Underbull and vice president of the Oyen United Kangas, says it was a great turnout from the club's supporters. Yeah, it was an interesting day, a fantastic um, day for our footy club, which it always is, the annual. Uh taking off for the harvest, so we had a block of barley, which uh, which we got into, uh, five headers, five chases, I think there was six V-doubles and another three singles, um, it was a bit of a late start due to a, a pretty heavy dew that morning, but um, well, we finally got it off last night, and uh, yeah, it was a, just a tremendous effort by all involved to, uh, to get it off. And it must have been nice, Andrew, to, to put out the call for, for headers and chases and trucks and have so many machines turn up? Yeah, look, it's tremendous. We get amazing support from um, the local farmers. So uh, the, the time and effort and, and money they put into the club is just incredible. So we had such a great roll-up. Um, yeah, we got the job done. It's pretty slow, slow and tedious, which is uh, a bit of a sign for the upcoming harvest. It's very, very, very slow. But, um, look, we, we got it done, and, and we're so grateful and thankful for all those that, that chipped in and helped out. It was a, it was a fantastic effort. And just on the, on that, the commitment of time, I'm sure everyone who was there, yourself included, had plenty to do back on the home front, but still happy to give up the day? Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, it's just one of them things. It's uh, obviously a major fundraiser for the year, and um, everyone puts in that day, and we had headers pulled out of paddocks that had already started. And, you know, that's, a, that's a huge commitment when, you, when you've been waiting to get your own harvest off, and it's it hasn't been ideal conditions, that's for sure, but they all stopped, pulled out of their own paddocks and, and headed across to ours and, and we took it off. So it's just a, a fantastic commitment by a, by a loyal crew that, that really supports the club. How was the crop? I imagine it was a pretty handy barley crop. Yeah, it didn't yield quite as well as we thought. Uh, it, looked, it looked amazing all year. Um, the test weight was down, which is which might also be a sign of things to come, I think. The quality wasn't quite there that we thought, which, of course, affected the yield. So test weight was a little bit low, but, look, all in all, um, we got it off. It's all in an ag store, Owen, and Joel Watson, um, for opening up and let us uh, let us deliver everything. So we'll market it down the track, and hopefully it'll be worth something. We'll put a little bit in the bank balance. And the test weight down just with the, the sheer amount of rain we've had over the past couple of months? So yeah, uh, the crops are that big and heavy, which we're we're not used to growing up here. And normally we don't really have an issue with test weight and quality so much. But yeah, just for the, the sheer amount of rainfall that we've had over the last six or seven weeks, 
which is unprecedented. No one in their in living history can remember such a wet finish to a to the season and cool. So yeah, it just dropped the test weight out of the barley, unfortunately. Andrew, we spoke uh, a month ago when you were cutting your vetch for hay. And you weren't sure whether it was the right thing to do. Lots of people had sprayed out their vetch for brown manure. Uh, but you, you went ahead and cut, and, and you have managed to get quite a bit of that into a bale now. Yeah, we're about two-thirds of the way through the program, and I'm still not sure whether I've done the right thing or the wrong thing. It certainly created a lot of work, and uh, with the rains that we've had, we've raked it a couple of times and trying to dry it out, and it's certainly far from from the best quality hay I've ever produced, but... It's bailing up all right, and, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get something in a bale and stacked away, and, yeah, it might be worth something down the track. Unfortunately, all those flooded uh, farmers around the areas, uh, and you feel for them, they're, they're in a lot worse position than what we are, so hopefully someone will need something one day, mate, yeah. Right, so you'll, you'll bale it up, stack it up, uh, and then get into your grain harvest and not worry about it for a while? <laughs> yeah, uh, look, the grain harvest will start maybe on the weekend or something like that. So there's a few farmers that are, are just having a nibble now and uh, it's probably still fractionally too green. There's a lot of regrowth, which is uh, causing problems, but everything's just so wet. The straw, and you certainly notice with baling, the, the dews are really heavy in the morning and then comes in really quick at night. There's a rolling on, I just went over. Uh, comes in really quick at night, so you don't really get a big bailing window of opportunity. But look, everyone's just keen to get into the harvest and, and see what we've got. Yeah, and with those big straw loads and all that that damp straw, how'd you go with the footy club crop getting th- chopping through that straw? Look, incredibly slow job, um, very very slow. We thought we weren't going to quite get the job done, so we, we had to send out the SOS and get another header. And uh, we've locked a few headers up. Certainly, there's a very high um, straw load going through, which makes the job so slow. So, yeah, it's going to be a long and tedious process harvest. Mm, so does that mean that you're going to be on fairly restricted hours maybe for, for some of harvest, not being able to start early or, or work too late? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It'll be a maybe a start at 10 or 11, and I think by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, the moisture's going to be back up through the roof again. So it, uh, it won't be a... Oh, yeah, a long hour job, that's for sure. It's just going to be the ground so wet, moisture comes up out of the ground. It's going to be a slow, slow job, mate, but we've just got to get into it and do it. And, uh, yeah, the season's been so promising and, and everyone's been looking forward to trying to get into it. It's been delayed, it's been wet. Um, now we're running into quality issues and uh, we just need some, some hot weather. Give us a couple of hot months and we'll be happy. Andrew, I know you're in the bale attracted heading to the next paddock, so I'll, I'll let you go, but thanks for having a chat. Cheers, mate. All the best. That's Andrew Wilsmore from Underbull, but also Vice President of the Oyen United Kangas Football Netball Club. Should mention the netball side of things as well, uh, talking a bit about the season, but also about the harvest of the barley crop for the footy club, footy netball club. I nearly did it again. There we go. That's about all the time we have for you. On the Country Hour for this week, just about time if I'm going to keep making mistakes like that. I am super keen to get out of the office with the Country Hour and start taking it on the road. We've obviously been dealing with a lot lately and and trying to stay close to that news at hand in the studio. But if you have a suggestion on where we should go, what we should talk about, just send us an email. Country Hour, or one word, 
at abc.net.au. Country Hour at abc.net.au. I would love your suggestions on where we should go, who we should speak to, what we should talk about as we get the Country Hour on the road. I hope you have a great weekend. Not too much rainfalls. We'll catch you on Monday. Music.